What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Hello. It's Tuesday, so you know what that means. John Taylor of Fangraphs.com is here to talk all things Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball is happening this week. We have, um, I mean, baseball. Regular season baseball. It's here, but we also have just a crazy amount of news that I feel like has broke over the last week since we last recorded. John, um, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Not too bad. How about yourself? Not too bad. It's a beautiful day down here in Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm going to get my run in after this. It's going to be good. Uh, I'm very excited. Um, I just, there's so much news, and I feel like I'm not going to be able to cover everything. Uh, You're very excited about Pablo Sandoval being the Braves' starting third baseman by June, which is a little concerning. You you know what's going to happen. Just just accept it. I mean, if he's good, I don't really care. Um, that's fine. And Riley was hitting in the nine hole last year uh, at this uh, with with the DH and everything. So it's like if Pablo is the ninth hitter, I don't, I don't know. Um, bad news for Austin Riley. You could do worse. Yeah, you could do worse. You could do worse. Um, the worst news, I think, we have to start here because you are so high on the Chicago White Sox. You're you're drinking all the Jerry Reinsdorf Kool Aid. Big Tony Tony Larusa guy over here, John Taylor. Um, Aloy Jimenez is out for four months um, due to a ruptured pectoral tendon. Um, This is a brutal blow, right, for the for the White Sox, John? Yeah, it's it's certainly not a good one. uh, Both because Jimenez is obviously going to be a big part of their lineup for what he did. Obviously, with the power he has, it's going to be a big productive piece in the middle of the order. But also because. And this probably goes more toward kind of an offseason, the White Sox kind of, where they both did well, but also seemed to miss some really crucial spots. And I think when we talked about the White Sox, I feel like we both agreed that the outfield was something they kind of just hand-waved. I mean, that's if you're signing Adam Eaton, that is the, the transactional equivalent of just hand-waving it. And now they're in a position where they both don't really have a starting a starting left fielder now with Jimenez out. Um and also are in a position where they're now going to probably have to try Andrew Vaughn in that position. And Vaughn is many things. He's one of the best college hitters literally ever. He's a great prospect. He's someone who I think on a more flexible version of this White Sox roster where Jose Abreu and Yasmani Grandal and up to up when he was healthy, at least Jimenez, were not there, would have made a ton of sense just as the starting DH. That's going to be a little complicated now because Vaughn is almost certainly going to be tried in left field to see if he can hack it. I'm not sure that that's really going to work out. He does not, by any stretch of the imagination, have an outfielder's build. He might be one of the few guys in the in the majors who is as bad as Jimenez is defensively. And it's again, it's worth noting here that Jimenez hurt himself playing defense because he is quite possibly the worst defensive outfielder in baseball. But, of course, but whatever the White Sox do with Vaughn, be it stick him in left field or have him as the starting DH, the loss of Jimenez opens up a lineup hole that you can't really fix internally. There aren't really any good internal options for the White Sox. 
maybe someone like Zach Collins, who, you know, was, you know, a high draft pick and was considered maybe to be kind of their future catcher, but certainly doesn't seem to be in that position anymore, can help at the age. Maybe they actually get something out of Leary Garcia. Uh, maybe there's some trade they can pull off either before the season starts or at some point throughout the season. But either way, it's, it's really a position that it's really a loss that hurts not just because of you know, no longer having Menez, but also because of what it does in terms of opening a lineup hole that doesn't really have an easy solution. Even if you, even if you do go with Vaughn there, you have to understand defensively, he's probably going to struggle. And he's also never played above high A. The projections for him aren't particularly rosy. And I don't, I'm not saying that, you know, just because the projections are, are not great means he won't be great. He's a very talented hitter. And I, and I think he's, you know, he's certainly got a bright future, but it certainly feels like this is not the ideal scenario for him, both in terms of kind of, I mean, you could argue whether or not offensively he's ready for the majors, but I don't think it's in, I don't think it's in his best interest or anyone's best interest to try to force him to learn an entirely new position that increases the chances of him getting hurt, or at the very least, maybe, maybe takes away from his ability to focus on learning how to hit major league pitching. Uh, which, again, for a guy who's never played above high A, seems kind of important if you want him to be a regular part of your lineup. Yeah. I am I'm interested. It also, Vaughn just seems like I, he's going to be fun. I hope he's good. And it seems like he is going to be pretty good right away for the White Sox. But it will be interesting to see if they have to um, make a move uh, pretty early on. Um, you can have an Ender Inciarte, if you will. Um, he's he's available, Chicago. Go, go grab him. Um, We'll trade. How about this, Andrew Vaughn for Ender Enciarte? Who says no? Literally, literally the White Sox. <laughs> That's, I mean, it's a nice try. Like, um, I'm pretty G-Man sure hangs, Yeah, I'm pretty sure uh, Rick Hahn hangs up the phone laughing. But well, you know, you can't teach that kind of grid. And I don't know if you've seen Enciarte's range in center, but he's he's got the range, man. Um, G-Man Choi is undergoing arthroscopic knee surgery um now the rays are going to have to get a little um little i don't know what versatile they're gonna have to get a little outside the box when it comes to replacing him for the first part of this season uh what do you make a Choi as absence for the rays uh it sucks for the rays just because you know as, as you know they're gonna have to get a little i don't know if it's a little out of the box but they are gonna have to get someone creative because you know Choi was he wasn't a starter, I don't, or he wasn't considered a starter, but he was a, a platoon guy they were going to deploy yep. mostly against right-handers. And on the plus side for them, they still have the other half of those of that platoon in either Mike Rousseau or Yandy Diaz, depending where either or both are needed. I think the major ramification of this is you're going to see more playing time for a guy who already was probably going to get more playing time, a guy I think the Rays are pretty high on even after he had a disappointing debut last year in Yoshi Satsugo. Um, already a dude I think they were trying to find some space for in the outfield, maybe as part of the DH rotation. I wonder if uh, Sutsugo ends up getting time at first base, too, if he just becomes kind of a jack-of-all-trades across the diamond as part of fitting into a platoon somewhere or another. Because, you know, this is this is what the Rays do. They just find platoon partners for everybody and just mm-hmm. take advantage of, of that kind of mismatch whenever possible. But it does seem like the big winner in terms of uh, upping upping the playing time, or at least getting more of an opportunity at Sutsugo. I, I guess the other option would be kind of plugging Diaz in there on the semi-regular and seeing if he can't become a productive full-time regular. Um, I know that, I mean, there, there are pluses and minuses to the Andy Diaz experience. You know, certainly he's got, he's got a good eye. He's got He's very strong. He makes very hard contact. 
but a lot of it is on the ground. There's not a ton of power, not a ton of extra base hits. Ideally, I think his his ideal state is just line drives everywhere, but that's not really come together in the time Tampa's had him since getting him from Cleveland. So I, I wonder if that's if they're at this point just more con, more content using him as just kind of a rotating platoon bat. I, I doubt Rousseau is going to get too long a look. I think he's pretty well established himself as a platoon bat ideally right now. So I think if anyone it's, that's going to come out ahead with Choi out for at least a month, it's probably going to be a Sutsugo. Interesting. Um, some more news and notes. Uh, Jazz Chisholm wins the Marlins' second base job. How how excited are you to see him every day in Miami? It should be fun. I think he's more a more fun option at least than than the like. I mean, I like John Birdie as a player. He's a nice utility guy with a lot of good speed, but Birdie's upside is pretty limited. I think utility guy with speed is pretty much what the best you can expect out of him. And I think it's probably more useful for Miami to have him as kind of a roving guy you can plug in as needed, especially with an outfield that still feels kind of iffy for, for Miami. Uh, Chisholm, I think, probably still has some more development to do. He's not a big power guy. You're not going to see too many home runs from him. It's really speed and contact is his game. I'll also be interested to see what he does defensively because he did come up as a shortstop. Obviously, those skills do transfer over to second base. I think the, obvious, the interesting obviously, will be how he handles double plays, how he mans pivots, how he handles especially... Uh, I don't know how shift-heavy the Marlins are. I haven't looked at their numbers for that. But it would be interesting to see how he handles those defensive shifts where he's standing in basically shallow right field as a second baseman. But, I mean, the thing with Miami is their lineup doesn't have a ton of power anyway. It kind of is oriented more toward that jazz chisel style of, you know, contact and speed. And so I think he makes sense for what they're doing, you know, when you also include, you know, uh, Sterling Marte, when you include... Miguel Rojas, when you include Verdi when he plays, Isan Diaz if he's available at any point. Um, I like. I mean, I I think it's, it's always excuse me. It's always nice to see the future arrive, and certainly Chisholm isn't uh, the biggest prospect. I think the Marlins fans are waiting for. That's probably either Max Mayer or JJ Blade or one of their new or uh, once he comes back from uh, this kind of. I don't think it's. I don't know if it's a paper assignment or what, but Sixto Sanchez is going to be in the minors to start the season. Yeah, probably they're doing a four-man rotation. It looks like, which is a bold yeah, move in twenty twenty-one. They have. They don't need a fifth starter. I think for the first week or so of the season, so they're just going to let Sanchez sit and just because. I mean, that's the other thing with Sanchez that they obviously want to manage the innings because you know he's obviously the one of their crown jewels going forward. But you know, it's. I think it's just interesting. I think it's good to see a team just kind of embrace the youth movement too and just go with these guys who have the upside because I guess the other thing with Chisholm is yeah, you could send him down to AAA and see if the power develops, see if he gets a little more consistent. I think plate discipline is another one of those things too where you want to see him improve. But at the same time, if you feel like you're, you know, the, the ceiling is probably close enough anyway, you might as well give it a shot in the majors and see what's up. And Miami really is one of those teams, I imagine we'll probably talk about to some degree, that could use every extra win if contention is actually something that they are serious about or at least aiming for. And I think there's honestly a – it's tough because – and I, we'll, we'll definitely talk about this more. The NL is a very, very tough league, but I do think Miami is not – Miami is not awful. I think there is a – it's a tiny chance, but I think there's a chance that they could actually be something this season. And I think a guy like Chisholm will probably go a long way toward doing it if he can hit the heights that he's supposed to. I think a lot of it, they just need some of the teams in front of them. They need them to, to implode. They need the nationals or the Phillies. To yeah. Implode. I mean, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of the thing. And I know we'll, we'll go through that, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of teams standing between the Marlins and even a wild card spot, much less, uh, much less obviously the at least. But I also would bet on that. I would bet on one of the four, favorite pseudo favorites and hey fisher um 
one of the pseudo favorites to implode. I think it's just very unlikely that all four are around the 80 win mark as Pakoda projects. Because um, I think Pakoda has 91 wins to the Mets and then the Braves, Nats, and Phillies all around 83, which I just I don't think is going to be reality. I think it's going to be one of those teams implodes. Um, don't know which one. Hope it's not the Braves, but uh, I just I don't think it's going to be all four and that close. Um, it's just really hard for four teams to be that good and be that at each other's throats um, for the full 162 game season. Um, Odor designated for assignment by our Texas Rangers. John, uh, pour one out for our guy. Is this it? I think this is it in terms of Rugnit Odor being given a chance to be a productive major leaguer. I mean, he has not really shown, aside from one season back in 17, I believe it was, uh, which was the same, whatever year was he punched Jose Bautista, which I believe is 17. Yeah. There hasn't really been any sign that Odor can marry all the various things necessary to be a an above-average major league player. Um, certainly he has, he has a ton of power, but then, you know, he didn't walk. Then he upped his walk rate, but the rest of his game seemed to fall apart after that. Not only that, he's not particularly good defensively at second base. I know the Rangers were trying him at third and ultimately just decided, nah, this isn't really worth it. I think there's probably still a home for him somewhere, but it has to be something like, I know Baltimore's come up as a kind of frequent destination because they, the Orioles, I don't think actually even have a second baseman right now, which a Orioles, but I just have a hard time seeing any contender or even any good team bothering with Odor at this point. He kind of is what he is at this point. You know, he's, this is not a 24 year old dude who has struggled to put it together or has been hampered by injuries. This is a guy who's been given quite a few seasons to figure it out and just hasn't for whatever reason. And I think ultimately it's just, you know, you've never really seen the plate discipline take the strides necessary to make him an above average regular. So yeah, I I can see a kind of bottom, you know, bottom tier team like Baltimore giving him a shot. But I think at this point you're probably looking at a career as kind of a Jonathan scope light, you know, kind of a slugging second baseman who doesn't really do a whole lot else and kind of floats from, you know, rebuilder, rebuilding team to rebuilding team on cheap one-year contracts, just to you know help take plate appearances when they when there really isn't a better option available. I, and unfortunately for Odor's, he was definitely a fun player when he was you know producing. It just doesn't seem like the the pieces are there for him to be anything more than kind of a fill-in infield option for bad teams at this point. Yeah, that uh, that does seem like the the case. Um, last thing on the news and notes segment before we get into our MLB season preview extravaganza john um the angels yep. signed some some more bullpen help and some really important one and uh chizik and watson what do you make of the angels the very last minute uh, upgrading this bullpen um i mean it's, it's, it's never really ideal when your team makes a bunch of bullpen moves right before the season starts it doesn't really suggest good things about who's already there yeah um i think in los Angeles's case i know they made some moves to try to make the bullpen better I don't really know if I liked all the moves they did to make the bullpen better. I think Rice and Iglesias was a good pickup, but it doesn't really feel like they did a whole lot more than that. And of the guys they got, I mean, it's interesting. We just, we're about to run something on Fangraphs about this by a young man named Jake Mailhot, who also writes for Lookout Landing, about I think the most interesting thing about who the Angels have added in James Hoyt and Steve Ciszek and Tony Watson is that all three of those guys are, you know, they're not, I would even I don't think you'd consider them anything more than middle relief options at this point. Maybe one of them rediscovers something and can get a few high leverage innings. But what's interesting about them is they're all kind of in the same place of 
declining velocity. I don't think any of them throws above 90 at this point, relying more on off-speed and breaking stuff, and also coming at you from these very different arm angles. You know, Hoyt is very over the top. C-Sheck is obviously a side armor. Watson is kind of more of a think of three-quarters delivery. So I think what I think what's interesting about that is like the way the Rays did with their bullpen last year, where they had a lot of different a lot of different arms coming at you from a lot of different arm slots. I wonder if the Angels have kind of are going to kind of, if not intentionally, then at least somewhat accidentally, pursue a plan of well, these guys may not be you know they're not going to blow the ball past you, but you are going to have some it is going to be a bit of, bit of a confusing look going from from one to the other. I wonder if the idea there is just you know kind of a you know, give guys, give hitters different looks and just kind of live off the confusion that that might create. Because, I mean, ultimately, beyond Iglesias and Max Mayers, uh, or Max Mayers or Matt Mayers, I, I can't remember now off the top of my head. Um, I can't really, you don't really see, I don't think, too many guys in that bullpen who have super high upside or who have kind of the traditional weapons you'd expect a reliever to have. So I, I think, you know, deception, confusion, arm slot, stuff like that, it's, it's probably going to be the way the Angels have to go. But I think ultimately, regardless of how Hoyt and Watson and Fischek do, I, I think Los Angeles is probably a team you're going to see connected to any available reliever that comes across a trade market between now and the deadline because that's, that's definitely a, an area of, of, of improvement for them, uh, or at least an area that could stand some improvement. I think you're already seeing that being, being that they made as many moves as they did right before the season gets underway. Yeah, but hey, I think we should always give kudos to teams that see a need, address it, and say, hey, let's try and fix this, instead of, eh, oh well. Like, eh. Yeah, and I mean, I think, yeah. I think part of it, the Angels didn't really have much of a choice. I mean, they sent down Ty Buttrey, Felix Pena got hurt. I don't know how much they wanted to be relying on the likes of you know, a, a relative nobody like Carlos Rodriguez or declining veteran like Jesse Chavez, you know, it's, it, it makes sense to add whatever potential useful arms you can. Um, it's just, you know, you uh, inevitably and invariably at this time of the year, you're not going to get an impact bullpen arm unless someone is seeking to dump someone for, for no particular reason. Yeah. All right, John. Well, are you ready to get into our MLB preview extravaganza? Yes. Okay. I have a list of questions. I was thinking about this all week. Uh, some questions that I wanted to throw at you that we can revisit at the end of the season to see if clairvoyant John Taylor was correct. Um, how does oh, that sound? Boy. It sounds like I'm going to be eating a lot of crow mm. by, this, by this time in October, November, whenever it is you want to revisit this. But yeah, let's do it. Let's 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 go for it. Let's 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 make me look dumb. All right, I love it. My favorite game, Fisher's favorite game too. He was. All it's, the really, way it's a really easy game for other people to win, I will say that much. This is true. This is true. Um, John, a higher WRC plus at the end of this season, Ronald Acuna Jr. or Juan Soto? Boy, that is tough. Um, I mean, I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be honest. Like we Over the weekend, I made my, my predictions and picks for Fangraph's predict, season predictions. I picked Acuna as my NL MVP. Mm. I think just mostly because I think he is the most – I think it's going to either be John. You already have a permanent spot on this podcast. You don't have to butter me up anymore. But I think just purely on the hitting side of things, it's really hard to bet against Soto because of what he is and what he has done. Like find a flaw in his offensive approach right now. Find a flaw in what he does with the plate. You can't right now. The dude is the dude is young Ted Williams, and I think at least purely on WRC plus, I don't want to bet against him. I think overall value. I think it's. And I, I think, I, like I said, 
I think the NL MVP race is going to be Acuna versus Tatis just because they are both such well-rounded players who bring such a, you know, who bring something to the table pretty much everywhere. But I think just on pure offensive value, I, I think it's got to be Soto. I think he's got a very, very strong case as the best non-Mike Trout hitter in baseball. And honestly, would you be terribly surprised if given the same number of plate appearances, Soto outdid Trout in WRC Plus this year? You're breaking up, John. I can't hear you. Uh, oh. Something about Acuna having the same numbers as Trout this season? That sounds right. Okay. You know what? <laughs> Here I am trying to say nice things about Juan Soto after I already said a nice thing about Ronald Acuna. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Look! Look! What! Look! What you turned to! Look! What you've done! Look we what can. You've done we now. can just focus on uh, Acuna. We can just do that. We don't have to. Focus you want to? You want to do another? Want to talk more Braves or? Nah, you know, John. Um, we'll talk about your team next because I have a question. The Red Sox will finish higher than the Tampa Bay Rays in the ALE standings. Yes or no? I don't see it. Okay. I, I I just have a I have a hard time seeing it if only because the Red Sox rotation still remains like a real problem. I feel mm. like I mean, I don't. I mean, Eduardo Rodriguez I think should be back sooner rather than later. It sounds like what he's dealing with is just dead arm, and that which makes sense. I mean, the guy didn't pitch at all last year, but it does kind of speak to what the issues are going to be with this Red Sox rotation, which is they don't really have anyone they can count on for consistent innings. You know, I don't think I don't think Nate Yavaldi and Martin Perez are really the guys you want to focus on for that. And similarly, you know, you, I, don't know, I don't know how confident you can feel that you're going to get a full season out of Eduardo Rodriguez after his very scary bout with COVID last year and kind of having to ramp back up this year. Chris Sale obviously won't be part of the roster until the midseason, if even that, coming back from Tommy John surgery. Uh, not really mu- there's not really much in the way of pitching depth in the minors. I think Tanner Houck is probably the best bet there. And it's obviously they're not obviously, but the Boston took an even took a pretty big blow in that department too, with Brian Matta suffering a partial UCL tear that may or may not require Tommy John surgery. And look, I mean, I, I don't think you can look at a, the, the like players like Nick Pavetta and Garrett Richards and really feel like, okay, yeah, I can pencil those guys in for 150 good innings. I, I think there's going to be a lot of variance in that rotation. I think the bullpen is also going to be potentially an issue. I, you know, there's not a lot of consistency in the guys that they have in that group either. So for as much as this team, I think, can and should hit, um, I, I think that pitching-wise, pitching-wise, they're going to run into trouble. And I think the Rays, even though the Rays pitching staff also is not the best in part because they've just turned their rotation into, well, just kind of a rotating array of olds, um, I still think that they're just better at, pit, better at developing pitching, better at getting better pitching performances, and I think obviously have much better minor league depth to be able to add pitching depth if they need it. And on top of that, they have the number one prospect in baseball sitting in their farm system too. So that, that should obviously help. I, I think the Rays, I don't think the Rays are going to win the East. I have the Yankees winning the East, but I think the Rays should be a playoff team. I'm just not sure that they're going to be as strong as they were last year, uh, especially given that they, you know, what they have sacrificed in their rotation to get to this cheaper, more Rays-ish point. Eduardo Suarez and Chris Bryant are traded before next winter meetings. Yes or no? I mean, the thing with Bryant is I don't see how, unless the, I mean, there, there are two ways to look at it. One is that he doesn't get traded because the Cubs are contending the whole year. And even for as much as they would love to shed money, I don't think the, I don't think Cubs ownership or the front office can sell to the fans without a riot 
we're trading away one of our core pieces during a contending season for money. I know that's what they did with Darvish, but I think that's an easier one to, to, to make the case for because it's, he's an older pitcher. He's being paid more money. This is how we get younger and better. I, I don't think – I think if I think if Bryant were going to be dealt, it would either have been in the offseason or it's going to be with the Cubs like six games out of a playoff spot by mid-July. Um, I think that, that's probably what that looks like. I think with, I think Suarez feels a little more likely because I just I'm I'm not as high on the Reds as I am uh, as I am with the Cubs I think although I'm not particularly high on either but I think with the Reds especially they had such a weird off season that just they just didn't seem to get anything right that I'm curious whether or not they I'm just curious at this point for Cincinnati what the plan is going forward because this is a team that doesn't really have a strong farm system and doesn't really have a whole lot of young players on the roster. So you kind of start to wonder, okay, does this is this current Cincinnati core kind of nearing its end, slash is this the time when you start moving players like Suarez to try to start rebuilding that farm system or try to start getting younger? Because, I, I mean, I don't get it. I, I think Cincinnati could have been a real serious NL Central contender if they'd made a, just done something this winter. But the fact that they haven't makes me wonder if they've just kind of decided – quietly and then if they're just going to admit it out loud by midseason that this team just is not really built to contend anymore so i think of the two i would probably put the higher odds on suarez being dealt but Mm. i think if the cub i think if both teams are out of playoff position then i think it's more likely that bryant gets dealt if that makes any sense interesting see i think it's gonna be suarez if i had to put money on it i would say suarez is the more likely guy to move and i think the cubs just i think he's the more like i think he's the more likely guy overall but I think if the situation is equal for both teams, I think the Cubs are going to want to get more for Bryant or are going to feel the need to get something for Bryant as opposed to the Reds uh, for Suarez. I mean, and I guess the other question is, and I should, I, like, I can't remember what the, the situation is here. Is Suarez a free agent after the end of the year? Mm-hmm. Let me see. Let me pull that up. I want to say he and Bryant both are. Let me pull it up. Um... Yeah, because I know I know Bryant is, and so I know that for the Cubs, you know, if they do get to that point of, oh, we're you know we're out of contention, we need to move. Uh, we need to. No, move he signed Chris through twenty twenty four. He's a free agent in twenty twenty five. And that's the other thing, like with Suarez with his contract, there's no incentive for the Reds to move him unless they just get bowled over by an offer. I think Suarez is more likely to move if he gets moved in the off season. I think Bryant is more likely to be moved during the season. Interesting. Um, next up. The Twins finally win a playoff series. Yes or no? Uh, I mean, if they don't get the Yankees again, I, I'd, be, I'd feel better about it. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to make a prediction there just because the vagaries of the postseason. Do we even know for sure if there is not going to be an expanded postseason this year? I don't think they've announced that yet. No, and I feel like they, I mean, the season starts on Thursday. I know they announced it on opening day last year, but they also mm. had extra months to figure that out. Um, assuming then we still get the division winners plus two wild cards, I think the Twins definitely make the playoffs. I, I have them winning the Central, but that, it's tough because I, I think I think so much of it depends on how healthy, how healthy they are by that point in the season, um, especially, you know, how they line up pitching-wise. Because I think that's going to be a big thing, too, is, you know, who's the guy after Kent Ameda and Jose Barrios who's going to be, you know, who's going to help them kind of get past that point? Uh, they don't have Jake Odorizzi anymore, although he barely pitched last year and he wasn't good when he did. 
um, there's not really anyone in that farm system who is kind of ready to come up. I mean, it, it, it's, your, it's your your choices right now. I mean, the, that rotation right now is, is rounded up by Michael Pineda, Jay Hab, and Matt Shoemaker. How confident do you feel with any of those guys taking the ball in a, in a postseason game? Or Randy Dobnak, if one of those guys isn't available. Oh, I'll sign me up for Randy Dobnak in the five-year extension there. Got to do it. Lock him so, in. And you definitely have a team, like, in this Twins lineup, if there's one What's real Mike big concern you have with it. <laughs> big Pelf. Uh, Got to get John Main back in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if there's one thing you're definitely concerned with with this with this Twins lineup too is that there are there are a lot of guys in there who have really struggled with injury issues. Josh Donaldson, Jorge Pol- or not Jorge Polanco, sorry, Josh Donaldson, Miguel Sano, Byron Buxton, Angelson Simmons. You know, at the same time, Nelson Cruz is going to turn 41. I don't know how much you can necessarily. I, I think we've talked about this before, but the cliff is coming. The drop is going to happen. It, it is inevitable. Age will always win. And the question with Nelson Cruz is, well, when is that going to happen? Is it going to be this year? Is it going to be next? Who knows? But um, I, I think the Swin team has a lot of it's certainly kind of not necessarily a boomer bust team. I think they can. I think they certainly can win a playoff series. There's no reason they can't. But it's really just going to depend on how healthy they are going into the postseason, and if they can find that kind of reliable third starter behind uh, behind Meta and Barrios. And I think. I don't necessarily know if it's someone on that roster. Maybe it's someone they acquired during the course of the season. But uh, I say they do win a postseason series, but it's I don't I, I don't feel super confident about that. But I also I mean who feels confident saying X is gonna win a playoff series and you know, before opening days even here. But I, I think those are my issues with Minnesota though, that in a, at least, you know, by that point of the season it's like it's really gonna depend on health and especially on the rotation. That is fair. Um, Buster Posey is finally moved from San Francisco this season. No, no way. They're going to let him finish out his time there. Um, I don't, the giants are many things, but it's been very clear over the last few years that they will let their guys kind of go out on their own terms. They, They did that with Bumgarner. And I know Bumgarner was somewhat different because I think obviously if the giants had not been, you know, kind of on that weird hot stretch they were on when, when the deadline came up, they probably would have moved Bumgarner. But I think Farhan Zaidi realized one, there would have been a riot in the clubhouse if they'd done that. And two, I do kind of like this idea. It's like, let these guys go out on their own terms, you know, let, let the fans have this, let them have these moments for the franchise, you know, that they have been so important to. And for as important as Bumgarner is, or was to the giants Posey, I think is even more so by a factor of like 10, you know, I, I can't see, not only not only that, but I also can't see who would be in the market for Posey unless a contender lost their catcher for the entire season and just desperately needed someone. Like, I, it's just kind of hard to imagine that Posey gets moved in the first place because I'm I'm not really sure who would even be in the market for him. It, like, think about this way: Is there any contender right now where you look at what they're doing a catcher who they're planning to start there and go, "Oh man, they cannot do that. That is a terrible decision." Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of contenders who I think you, you look at their catcher situation and you're like, oh, that's not great. But I don't think there's anyone that's in a position that's so bad where it's like, we have to do something to get someone. And I also just kind of doubt that Posey's going to be able to do enough in... Uh, Posey's going to be able to do enough for any team, either the Giants or anyone else, really to make himself a trade target unless he gets sold off for virtually nothing. And I think at that point, if, if the if the choice ahead of in front of Zaidi is sell Buster Posey for nothing and piss off fans who are already seemingly not terribly thrilled about 
you know, kind of all the turnover that there's been in San Francisco or just let him stay there, play out the string and, you know, give people good memories on the way out. I don't really think there's much of an argument for trading him unless you get an offer that just folds you over. And I, I don't really know who would be making that because of the, obviously the Buster Posey of 2021 is no longer the Buster Posey who existed, you know, in the, over the last 10 years. Yeah. Cleveland announces the, their new team name before the end of this season, yes or no? Nah, I think they're going to do like like Washington in the NFL and just kind of draw the process out. I don't think there's really any rush there, it feels like, because you know whatever they pick is going to have to be both obviously sensible and good and also win over those Cleveland fans who are psychotically attached to the old team name. So I, I don't really see any... Spiders, let's go. It's all I want. Cleveland Spiders. It's that easy. Just do it. I think it's, this is more like, something more likely to happen in the offseason because, I correct me if I'm wrong, I believe Cleveland has a 2022 All-Star game. They, I um, would say so. They might have 2021 if uh, this voting stuff keeps up in Georgia. They may get it in 2021 instead. Well, the Dodgers have it in 2022, so that makes me wonder mm. if they've just pushed everything back now. Yeah, because you're right, the 2021 one is supposed to be in uh, in Atlanta. But I, regardless, like I do think that I the league would probably... Yeah, that's its own very, very tricky basket of issues right now. But mm. I, I just don't see the I don't see the pressure for Cleveland to adopt a new name at any point this year. I mean, I think they're just going to go with what they. I mean, I think they've already said we're going to keep the name this year. We're just going to phase out Chief Wahoo, mm. and then eventually we will just be you know we will get we will change to something entirely entirely different. I think if anything this season, you would probably see them like I said do what Washington did and just go by Cleveland baseball team, um, and just have and just wear jerseys that say Cleveland. And just do that while they kind of root. Because the other thing, obviously, they have to, you know, beyond just picking a team name, they have to, you know, secure all the intellectual property rights and the yeah. trademarks and, you know, the merchandise. And the I just think it's funny. Did you read the, uh, so I think his name is Jason Barry, the new VP or the new president of the Washington football team, where he's doing these, uh-huh. like, not like every three weeks updates <laughs> on the Washington website about, like, we got our three, submissions. Like, hmm? We have not yet chosen a team name. Please tune back in three weeks. Yeah, like he, but he's he's talking about submissions and he's like explaining the submissions and what's common and the warthogs is like a common thing that people are sending in. But I just think it's funny and I'm like, this is the most analytical, serious debate over what kind of animal you want uh, your team name to be. Like it's just such a it it, it seems so silly that we're well, my, putting so much investment my, in this shit. It's not that hard. Just stop naming it after races of people and people like that. Just pick a pick an animal, pick a whatever, and let's go. Like this is not that complicated. Yeah, my, my, my general my general take on this is there are no good team names really left at this point. They've mm. all pretty much been used, and whatever Cleveland picks is just going to be probably not going to be a, a great one. But I agree that it's like it doesn't fucking matter at this point. Just pick pick something, pick something so it's not Indians anymore. Like yeah. just pick anything. Just pick go with do what Washington did. Just go with Cleveland baseball team. There's nothing wrong with that. Oh, see, I don't complain. like that. I, I, that bothers me. Because, like, that's what's happening in MLS, where, like, every team is rebranded to, like... But that's, te- a, but that's, an, that's an existing soccer thing. That, that's yeah, like, I, I mean, just don't that, want that, that permeating through everything existed. else. That'd be boring as that's hell. That's fair. That's fair. I just don't think we're going to see any significant name change this season. I don't think there's yeah. really any... I think the pressure, first first and foremost, on Cleveland is no more Wahoo. Yeah. And I think that is. I think that is easier, much easier done. In fact, they've already been doing it. 
um, than finding a new teammate. And I don't really don't think that MLB is going to apply too much pressure on this either. They've got they've got other things to worry about. I don't like, think Rob Manfred gives a shit. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he cares either. I think he only cares about it insofar as it is a controversy that he no longer wishes to exist because it takes away from the marketing and selling of baseball. It is it it is a complicating factor that he no longer wishes to deal with. Um, it's like Lucille Bluth, the late great Jessica Walters. Late great I, Jessica Walters. <laughs> I don't understand the question, and I won't respond to it. Um, the Rockies finish with the worst record in Major League Baseball this season. Yes or no? That's a tough one. Um, I think there are a lot of really good candidates for worst record. I think the <laughs> Orioles. I hate doing this. I feel like I'm picking on the Orioles all the time, but man, that team is bad. That team is so bad. Like they spent the off season actively not trying, and then they got they kept getting worse over the. You're not supposed to get worse over the course of spring training, mm. and yet the Orioles have somehow managed to accomplish that. I, I don't get it, but hey, they, they very clearly do not care about whatever happens in 2021. So, and I think that's that's also something worth noting is it's going to be hard to be worse than the teams that actively don't care about this season. And I think Baltimore is definitely one of those teams. I think Detroit is a team that's just going to use this season for evaluation purposes. I think um, Texas certainly has absolutely nothing to play for beyond just being there, and that is a really, really bad roster, too. I think the things, obviously, in Colorado's uh, disfavor are a lineup that really, aside from Trevor Story and Charlie Blackman, has no impact hitters, a rotation that is just who knows at this point what what they're capable of or what they're going to do beyond Herman Marquez, a bullpen that is really weak. Like there's just every bad team is bad in its own way, but they're also all bad in the same ways. And I think Colorado hits the same notes as like Baltimore and Detroit, especially Baltimore, Detroit, Texas, where there's just no pitching and Pittsburgh. I obviously can't forget the pirates. All of those teams have no pitching to speak of. Um, I think the question is which of those teams kind of has the more upside potential i guess we're we've been putting it like lineup wise or in terms of prospects if i come up and i think that might be the one saving grace for especially baltimore and detroit who are going to be able to start calling up some good prospects when I mean, you already saw the tigers are going to have both Tariq scubal and casey mize be a part of the uh, opening day roster and i'm sure matt manning isn't terribly far behind you know baltimore is going to have some decent young pitchers uh, i don't really think we're i don't think we're going to see adley rushman this year but there is you know the possibility that they start pushing other pieces from that farm system up um so i think in reality to me it just feels like if you're my my bet as what the worst team in baseball i think it'd be pick one of these three texas pittsburgh or colorado because no, those teams have nothing to play for see that's what i have i have pittsburgh pittsburgh is the obvious one to me Pittsburgh is really bad. They're going to be really, really bad because they they just flat out do not care. No, they and I also think they want like wrong. three straight years of top three picks. I, I think that's yeah. That's the other, that's the other thing for a team like for a team like Pittsburgh. The incentive is more let's let's secure that top three pick much more than it is anything else. I think mm. the one, I think one thing Pittsburgh does have going in its favor is that there is no juggernaut team in the NL Central that's just going to whoop on them all season. Mm. Um, which granted is, is not to say like the te- like they're obviously the worst team in that division. They're obviously not going to do well against anyone, but no one in the NL Central is particularly strong. I mean, I think you know, ask anyone what you what how many wins it takes to win the NL Central this year. I think most people are probably going to say something in that kind of eighty three to eighty six win. There are going to be three teams majorly. in the NL East that miss the playoffs that are all better than the NL Central winners. Probably yes. 
so I think that I think that is one positive for for the Pirates, as opposed to like say like the Orioles from a few from the last few years where they've had to contend with the Yankees. And that the one year where the Red Sox won 108 games and the Yankees won like 101, like that Orioles team just had no chance. They just got yeah. stomped on relentlessly. Um, same same the Orioles of the last couple of years with with regards to the Yankees and the Rays, but. I guess I guess in that regard, Colorado does stand out for me because they have to play the Padres and the Dodgers a combined 38 times, and that is going to be a bloodbath every time out. So, and I think similarly, Texas doesn't really have a super team in the in the AL West to contend with. Houston's obviously kind of on a, a little bit of a downturn. The Angels are the Angels are what they are. The A's obviously took a step back. So, you know, between Pittsburgh, Texas, and Colorado, I think there is a good a good bet that Colorado can be the worst because they have a not only do they have a brutal schedule with having to face, like I said, the Dodgers and the Padres for you know roughly a uh, sorry a fourth of the season, but half their games at Coors with a bad pitching staff. Oof. I think if nothing else, Colorado's going to have the worst rotation in baseball, I, or the worst pitching uh, staff in baseball. I don't, I don't. They're they're going to be some good contenders for that one, but Colorado is going to be really down there because of what they have to deal with. So. I think you're right. I think it's going to be one of Pittsburgh, Texas, or Colorado. And I think I've actually talked myself into the Rockies now. I think I've talked myself into the Rockies being the worst team in baseball. At least, maybe not the worst team in baseball, but I think there's a good chance they finish with the worst record in baseball. I think the actual worst team in baseball will still probably be the Pirates. But record-wise, being in the NL Central might save them in that regard. And, and not only that, but they also obviously get to play. I mean, everyone gets to play everyone, but they also get to play the AL Central. And the AL Central, aside from the Twins and the White Sox, is pretty bad too so nl central get excited last thing john on our playoff or on our playoff on our mlb season preview extravaganza um give me one surprise playoff team and one surprise team to miss this season okay so surprise surprise playoff team i find a little tough because and this is just i think mlb has the same feel to a certain degree as the NBA kind of does where it's like, you know who the contenders are and they should all be there. And those contenders are also like no one else is coming out of the NL West who is not the Dodgers and the Padres, right? No one else is coming out of the NL East that is not the Mets or the Braves or maybe the Phillies or Nationals. I no one roll else out is coming the Diamondbacks. Out of... I'm not going to roll out the Diamondbacks. I don't. I don't think anyone can beat either of those two teams in the West. That's just they're so talented. I think you know that. I think either one of those teams is probably your World Series pick, depending on mm. who you like more. But I think if there are some teams who could surprise, maybe not all the way to a playoff spot, but who I think are going to be better than what we give them credit for. I think the Royals are one of those teams. I. I I don't know if I've liked Kansas City's offseason, but it was definitely interesting. They definitely made some interesting additions. I think their pitching staff is better than people give them credit for. I think there's some legitimate upside in their lineup, or at least um, a, a higher floor than I think some of the other weaker teams out there. I don't think Kansas City has what it takes to beat either of the White Sox or the Twins in the division, and I'm not sure they have what it takes to beat out uh, Toronto, Tampa, you know, Boston, maybe the Angels, you know, for the, for a wild card spot. But I think they're going to be better than people think. And I think if they get hot at the right time, you could legitimately see them be part of the wild card chase. I think another team like that is the Marlins, kind of similar with a really good pitching staff and great farm system. Um, much harder road, obviously. If you if you consider that one of the two wild card spots will be whichever of the Dodgers or the Padres loses the West, 
and the other wild card spot will be a whole bunch of other equally good teams. I think the Marlins are going to have a little bit of a struggle there. Um, in terms of teams who I think are going to be surprising misses, I think either of the AL Central teams has a fair amount of bust potential. And I know we, I know you, you're not, you're not, you're not sold on the White Sox. I completely understand why. The Jimenez injury is bad. You know, there's a real big chance that team could just implode if things don't go right. Um, I think in a similar vein, I think Houston has some potential to miss out. I, I, I have them winning the AL West just because I really don't feel good about anybody in the AL West at this yeah. point. But Houston's pitching depth is not great. Um, that lineup, the lineup is good, but I mean, it, it, a lot of it's going to rely on, you know, can Jose Altuve bounce back? Can Alex Bregman bounce back? Can Carlos Correa bounce back? And they all should be able to. They're all good, quali- like capable hitters. But I certainly wouldn't be surprised if Houston struggles throughout the season. And I don't think it's really fair to say any of the NL Central teams. I don't think anyone would be surprised if like, any of those NL Central teams missing the playoffs or not winning the division. Um, I think the other kind of, maybe not surprised, but the other team I think is just not going to be as good as people imagine them to be. As, I, it's, it's both of them. It's the Phillies and the Nationals. I don't like either of them particularly. I think those are 500 teams right now, and I think there's a real chance that if there are injuries for both those squads, that things can go really, really hairy really quickly because they do not have the depth or the farm system to make up for big losses. So those are two teams where I think, you know, if things go wrong, things are going to go really, really wrong. I'll say the Blue Jays and the Brewers make the playoffs. I think those are my two surprises. I think both will find their way in. My surprise misses are the Cardinals. And I'll say... The White Sox are my other surprise miss. That's yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, I know I know you've been the low man on the White Sox. I, I think like the Cardinals, I I can't get a good read on them. I, I think they're the best team in that division by default, but I also wouldn't be surprised if they finish under 500. There's just not – I can't get a good read on any of the central teams. I just can't. They're, they're all just this kind of blah mess of mediocrity that I just – it just feels like picking a name out of a hat at a certain point as if he's going to win that division. Yeah. All right, John Taylor. Well, this has been fun. I'm excited. Baseball is back this week. Thursday, buddy. Thursday. Let's go. Thursday. It is Tuesday. Opening Couple day. More days. Couple Here. more days. Um, Couple more days. I'm excited. All right, John. Well, we'll be back next week with actual games to talk about and storylines and things like that. So I'm excited to actually talk about in-game action. John Taylor, we can follow you on Twitter at Taylor. Keep up with you and all the great folks at Fangraphs.com. So go Subscribe to Fangraphs today if you have not already. It's a great website, and uh, there's going to be great coverage all season long. Um, So go do that today if you are not already a member. Uh, Yeah, so great stuff. John, talk to you next week. See you later, buddy. Hey, everyone. Before we get started, I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, will help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is, 
you can get all of this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports podcasting experience. Uh, acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join. Again, that is bwhustle.com slash join. Check out the description box for this episode to find more, but that is bwhustle.com slash join. Right, we're back on the Chase Thomas podcast, and I am now joined by one of my favorite college football writers. He is back. I think we last talked, Ivan, about all the different uh, coaches. It, it, you and I, we just we can't escape college football coaching. Um, and you wrote a great piece uh, on the Ringer.com that everyone should go check out if they have not already. Um, it's it's a great piece, and I very much enjoyed it. It's called "Nick Saban Isn't Stopping Anytime Soon." Um, I'm sure there are some SEC fans, there are some college football fans who did not love seeing that headline uh, come across their their web browser uh, <laughs> over the last couple of weeks. Um, but I want to first ask you, how long have you wanted to write this Saban piece? Oh, that's an interesting question. Thanks for having me back, first of all. Uh, second, uh, it, it, it was not something that, I had been yearning to write. It just sort of uh, popped into my head. I started thinking about, well, the first thing that happened was I, I, I dawned on me right after the championship game that Nick Saban was 69 years old, and that's how old Bear Bryant was when he died. Then I started thinking, when does Nick, Saban surpassed Bear Bryant in terms of age. And the actual day was two weeks ago. It was actually the day before Alabama started spring practice. So then I just started thinking about how unusual it is that that Nick has continued to win at this level. I mean, the, the fact that he has won at this level is unusual for any age. But if you look at the history of coaching, most guys do not uh, they begin to recede after 60, even if they make 60, mm-hmm. and a lot of them don't. And I said, so I just sort of made a list in my head of all the reasons that the great coaches lost their fastball. Uh, and then I still realized that none of those applied to Saban. Either he, uh, most of the time he just ignored those things. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, Bobby Bowden uh, had a great staff and once that staff, but he kept together for many years. And once that staff began to seek out its own head coaching jobs, he never replicated the, the, that level of, uh, of coach in the meeting room and Saban, you know, he changes coaches every three or four months, whether he needs to or not, you know, is what it seems like. So uh, it just sort of, it all evolved from that. Just the, the first thing that happened was the age question. 
Yeah, I um, it, it's it's interesting because I wonder with Saban and I wonder with a lot of these guys because you cite Spurrier, um, you sorry Bobby Bowden, guys like that. And Spurrier's exit is just kind of one of the more crazy exits I think we've ever seen in yeah. college football. But when coaches know, it seems like the case is like they know. Like Beamer knew we were average. Spurrier knew. Beamer knew. Like a lot of these greats just kind of they just they just know. Um, I wonder with Saban if it's just more of like he looks at what these lives are like post coaching and do you think there's something he thinks about where he's like I I just I don't want to do any of that I don't want to go sit on the lake all day every day like I I have no interest in that so if that means changing my offense and bringing in Lane Kiffin and revitalizing and playing a brand of football that I may not totally love or grew up um, loving doesn't matter if it's going to keep me doing my thing keep me um, occupied, keep me busy, I'm going to do it. Um, do you think that's a big part of it for him? I do. And that's, you know, the, the anecdote with which I led the story, it, you know, that, that had something to do with the derivation of this, this piece as well. Mm-hmm. just seeing that, uh, seeing that exchange between him and, and Marcus Spears and, and, and understanding that even though that exchange was four years old, nothing's changed. He is still motivated by not wanting to lose. And uh, which is a little bit different than, than winning. You know, I, I mean, yeah, I think you have to hate losing at that level more than you like winning. And I think that's what motivates a lot of, of the great champions. Um it's clear, if, you know, to see that, to see that exchange, to understand he, you know, he does not want to lose at anything. And that is what keeps him getting out of bed day after day after day. How much longer do you think Nick has? If you really, really had to ballpark it, if you had to guess, what do you think the number is? Uh, I'd say five to seven years, mm. you know, I'd say six years is 75 and that's a round number. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course he will turn 70 in this coming season. So five more years, it would really, that would make it 26. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who knows? I mean, this is a in terms of milestone seasons coming up for Alabama. Twenty twenty five is the centennial of the first trip to the Rose Bowl, which is a hmm. a famous event in not only Alabama football lore but Southern football lore. That was sort of the the, the announcement that Southern football was the equal of any in the country it was when Alabama won that Rose Bowl. Uh, you know the. Uh, you know, if he turns 75 the following year in 2026, you know, maybe that's, who knows? I mean, I think he will keep going. Everyone's experienced the pain of dropped calls and internet outages, especially working remotely this last year. So here's the question. If you're the telco company, how do you help create better experiences for customers? Simple. ServiceNow Digital Workflows can help solve network problems faster and provide real-time status updates so customers aren't left in the dark. That's probably why ServiceNow Workflows have helped telco companies see an increase in customer satisfaction. But proactive customer communications only half the battle. 
with a single view of your back, middle, and front office operations. ServiceNow workflows also eliminate silos, keeping teams more in sync and more productive. With our scalable services, companies assure a better experience for both customers and employees on a single platform, the Now platform. So how do you help provide a better network experience for customers? With ServiceNow for telecommunications to help streamline network operations. Whatever your business is facing, let's workflow it. ServiceNow. What will be fascinating really is to see whether he recognizes that it's time to leave before anybody else does. And, you know, that's a, that's also uh, a rare quality, uh, you know, really, the, you know, the, I, as a, in the piece, I made a list of the guys I could think of who left on top and it's a pretty short list. I, mean, I came up with, with five uh, and, and even a couple of those, I'm not so sure about, you know, I, Tom Osborne, obviously uh, Bob Stoops, obviously, uh, Mike Bellotti, yes. Uh, Bud Wilkinson, he was just burnt out. Uh, you know, so there's just not that many guys that, that recognize, don't think they can't turn it around. You know, and uh, yeah, Tom I would Osborne think. Tom Osborne really stuck out to me in your piece. I think that name, I'd just kind of forgotten him just going out on top in the way he did and just how dominant it was. And um, that little bit that you had about what he told Saban when he beat Saban, what was it, like 50 to 10 when Saban was at Michigan State? And yeah. He said, you're not as bad as you think you are. Um, yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. Osborne's kind of like the yeah. forgotten one of this group, right? Well, he's, you know, uh, he... He retired 24 years ago, so that's a long time uh, in terms of it's not a long time for somebody like me who covered him. I mean, I, you know, I covered him for uh, more than a decade, uh, but that's a long time to be away from the, the spotlight. So, uh, you know, anybody really younger than 40 might have a tough time remembering, you know, not only how dominant he was, but that Nebraska was a national power and had been one for more than 30 years. So, uh, uh, but yeah, he, he, he left and, and we're all kind of mystified, but he just had enough and he went on to have another great career as a, not only a congressman, but as the athletic director at Nebraska. So, what was the favorite nugget that you came across while reporting on the story? Well, I, <clears throat> I probably just that Saban surpassed Bryant in age the day before spring practice started at Alabama. I thought yeah. that was, that I was, I was a little disappointed. It wasn't the day spring <laughs> practice started, but that, you know, you, you, uh, I was, I was happy that uh, it was that close. And, uh, there really aren't a lot of parallels between Bryant and Saban other than the obvious ones. Uh, so that was kind of, uh, that was nice to, to, to just sort of spin out of, you know, thin air. I was glad that worked out. Why do you think Dabo has been able to keep 
his guys for as long as he has because Saban it's completely different this these two are highly regarded as the the one two in college football coaching um why do you think Saban's guys all depart and it's just this never-ending churn and Dabo has been able to keep the Elliots and the Venables and everybody else um in the Clemson family for years and years now I, well, I think if part of it is personality. I think part of it is the personality of a campus. I mean, I think for Dabo, that sort of communal feel is important. And that's also uh, a, a part of Clemson. You know, Clemson is very much like Auburn in that regard, uh, not only because it's an ag school, but there's very much of a uh, you're, you're one of us quality. Mm-hmm to Clemson. And I think that's, that's who Dabo is. And, and he has built that vibe really from the time he took over, uh, you know, which was 12 years ago. So uh, I think that's a big reason that those guys don't leave. And, uh, and it had to be somebody like a Venables and, and like a Tony Elliott that, that, was comfortable with that and, and wasn't burning with ambition. And, you know, conversely, I think Nick drives everybody very hard Mm -hmm. and uh, he has, I think he's taken his foot off the gas pedal somewhat in, in, uh, you know, recent years, you know, we've actually seen him smile on the sidelines a couple of times Mm -hmm. Uh, and in interviews, and I think he's not a uh, the maniacal guy in the office that he used to be. Which is not to say that he's no longer maniacal. I, you know, I think it, he still can make a meeting pretty uncomfortable for somebody. But uh, I think you know, you want. I think those guys want to learn what he knows, and then they want to go try it out. So you know, on their own and see if they can make the, the magic translate and. and you know, uh, you can say that Kirby Smart has has done so to a to a degree. He just uh, hasn't done it as well as Nick. And, and there's a few other guys that have won, but just not as much as Nick. Well, nobody's won as much as Nick. But you know, Kirby's built a program that's got a lot of similarities to Alabama. Yeah. Um. If let's just say. Bryce Young is not a not a superstar. He kind of struggles, and Bill O'Brien is finally the the coordinator that uh, it's not pan out on the offensive side, and they 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 struggle a little bit. And Bama goes eight and four in a loaded SEC West this year, and they go maybe eight and four, nine and three next year. Do you start wondering, oh, is this losing enough? Because I don't think it's just going to fall off a cliff at Alabama like it did for Spurrier at South Carolina. What is the win loss record over a two year stretch where you're like you're raising some eyebrows and you're wondering, oh, is this this might just end really quickly here. Uh well I think the scenario you paint would be would be interesting because it would you know, that that's what usually happens is is you begin to lose but you don't lose so much that you don't think you're uh, a recruit or two away, you know, and, and you think we can still turn this around. Uh uh, you know, but I think that's the that's typically what happens. You know, it's unusual to see the bottom fall out the way it did in Columbia for for the head ball coach. So, uh, I, 
it would be interesting to see. You know, I, I think if it happened two years in a row, I, I would just be fascinated to see how, how Nick would react. It would. Um, and just a, you know, <laughs> as a Tennessee uh, grad student right now, would not hate it. Would uh, would not hate it. Um, and, you know, getting a competitive Tennessee-Alabama game would be nice again. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we I, would all like to. <laughs> we would all like it. I just prefer, like, I, I don't know if you saw, like, uh, Matt Wyatt um, tweeting out that uh, there's a strong rumor, and I don't know if you know about if you you've heard about this, but um, the the rotating schedule becoming more likely within the next five years in the SEC, um, and getting Alabama off the third Saturday of October uh, every year that'd be great. Uh, just uh, go ahead and start rotating them out. Uh, we don't need to do that every year. It's it's not good for the soul. Um, why do you wow. think? Yeah, I think that's great. Like I don't know. I don't know why we do that anyway. Um, why do you think? Coach Saban actually had more fun last year. Why, why do you think he's having more fun as of late? Do you think it's because he's looking at the end of the line or just because he's just won so much that it's just like, uh, I, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think? Well, I think it was a confluence of, of events last year. I mean, obviously, we all learned there are things that are more important than football, you know, and, uh, over the course of 2020. And I, I, so I, I think he saw this as more of a gift than perhaps he'd seen it as, as in past years. And, and I think he appreciated it the way that we all did, that we all appreciated having something else to focus on besides the four walls that have trapped us for 12 months now. You know, So uh, I think that had something to do with it. I think this was a unique group of players. Uh, one thing that I don't, I don't feel got enough uh, of a spotlight or a hot enough spotlight over the course of last year was the fact that the top players on that team uh, were fourth and fifth year guys in a sport where there's so much emphasis toward three and out. And I think the maturity level showed on the field. And I think, as a coach who's been around for almost 50 years, I think he appreciated being able to coach that age group again. You know, because so many of his guys do leave before their fourth or fifth season, and and the the you know, the benefits that uh, accrue to having four, you know, a fourth or a fifth year guy are so much more. I would think so much more of a pleasure to coach than a third-year guy. You know, you, you don't have to explain it over and over again. You just lay it out and they go do it. Uh, and and you have more leadership in the locker room than you do otherwise. So I think that probably had a lot to do with it too. And I think he's, he's older and wiser. You know, he's talked about the reasons that he has mellowed, uh, you know, the, the tornado 10 years ago. Uh, grandchildren, uh, the, the understanding that he's closer to the end than the beginning. I think all of that's played a, you know, played a role in in the Nick Saban we see now. Last thing, and we'll wrap up here, Ivan. Um, if you had to guess who follows Saban at Alabama, who would you guess as of right now? Uh, some poor misguided soul <laughs> would be who I would pick. <laughs> but the, what was the uh, it might have been Bobby Bowden who said it I don't want to be the guy who replaces it might have been 
That sounds like Bowden. Or maybe it was was it Tommy about replacing his father? You know, I don't want to be the guy who replaces him. I want to be the guy who replaces the guy who replaces him. You yeah. I mean? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. You know, um, I think uh, out of, uh, if I had to guess, since you asked me, I think Greg Byrne would pivot to Dabo because his, his, constituency would demand it and after mm. Dabo said no uh, you know then he'd have some work to do um, and I think uh, all bets would be all you know Nick uh, you don't have to you, I, you don't have to be an Alabama guy you know I mean that was the problem in replacing Bryant is that they kept trying to go to the family well there and it and with the exception of Gene Stallings, it didn't work. Uh, you know, Saban put that to rest. You know, is it one of his guys? You know, and uh, but you know, is there anybody out there that's on his family tree that, that is obvious? You know, does Kirby Smart leave his alma mater to come over here? I don't. I don't think so. Uh, is it uh, you know the guy down at? Louisiana, who's begun to win some, who, you know, I don't know, Billy Napier. I, I mean, there's nobody out there that, uh, with a saving tie that you think, oh, he's the guy, you know, it may turn out that Sark is, does Sark leave a, a, a Texas to come to Alabama? I mean, that, you know, we're, that's just way down the road. No, we don't, he hadn't coached a game at Texas yet. We don't yeah. know if he's a, a new Sark or the old Sark. Um, so, it's uh uh you know maybe you know maybe a Bill O'Brien or a Doug Marone, you know both were successful college coaches in the big you know in the Big Ten and in whatever league Syracuse was in at the time Marone was there. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know I mean I I don't know. Uh, there's nobody out there that you know I look at and go oh yeah he's the guy. Yeah. Ivan, uh, what can we check out from you outside of that fabulous piece at TheRinger.com right now? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, I will have a piece in the May issue of Texas Monthly. So, uh, uh, And I'll be sure to tweet everybody when it hits the web. Awesome, so, awesome. Uh, uh, I'm excited. I hope it's like 16,000 words on Haynes King and uh, the Texas A&M quarterback <laughs> <laughs> who told you yeah, no, not quite that long yeah uh that's that's just uh that's the reporter in me i just uh it was my instinct it was my writer instinct um all right well ivan thank you so much for the time it's always great checking in with you um stay safe out there and uh we'll check back in again soon okay thanks a lot have you ever said to yourself I love the fact that I've had the same few pair of sheets since just after college and I never liked them then, but I just keep washing them every week or two and putting them back on the bed like it's totally normal. Well, stop it. Brooklinen can make that voice in your head and the bad sheets on your bed go away. So Brooklinen was started by Rich and Vicky who also tried to find beautiful home essentials that didn't cost an arm and a leg. And when they couldn't, they founded Brooklinen as the first direct-to-consumer bedding company. They work directly with manufacturers to make luxury available directly to you without luxury-level markups. 
Brooklinen has a variety of sheets, colors, patterns, and materials to fit your needs and tastes. Brooklinen has over 50,000 five-star reviews and counting. They are so confident that you will love their products. They even offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. And Brooklinen is so much more than cheats. They've got comforters, pillows, towels, even loungewear, and more. Um, go to brooklinen.com and use promo code Chase T to get $25 off when you spend 100 or more plus free shipping. That is B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com and enter promo code Chase T to get $25 off when you spend $100 or more plus free shipping. Brooklinen.com and use promo code Chase T at checkout. All right, we're back on a Tuesday evening. This episode, all day, all day uh, for this episode of the Chase House Podcast. I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I'm joined now by old friend, uh, the now EIC of a blog that I have been reading for for so many years, Tim. There's not many of the True Hoop NBA blogs left standing, which really sucks because I miss having all those bookmarks and I miss reading all those different uh different blogs like clipper blog like hawks hoop and um, a wolf a wolf among wolves is still one of my favorites so i'm glad that is still around and kicking shout out to steve mcpherson shout out to all those guys uh zach harper zach harper and all that good stuff but um tim good evening how are you i'm doing well chase thanks for having me on man thanks for being here thanks for being here so if we had talked like a month ago our conversation about the timberwolves would have been completely different right like this is a totally different situation than the Timberwolves that I saw um, just play one of the worst basketball games I've ever seen against the Atlanta Hawks about a month ago. I don't know if you remember, but it was, it was God awful. <laughs> and uh, I, I just, I'd never seen a worse team. This is before Saunders got fired and everything. And now Chris Finch is in cat is back. Anthony Edwards is playing at a different level. Rubio's improving his game. Um, where are you at right now, Tim, with the, the Minnesota Timberwolves and who they are as a team right now. It's, you know, it's pretty mixed. Uh, It's hard to say how I feel right now because it's been so topsy turvy since Saunders was let go and Finch was hired there before Chris Finch was hired and brought on it. Like you said, it was mostly bad. Lots of brutal losses. Uh, Even the games that they in theory should have been in, they were not in. Carl Anthony Towns was hurt. D'Angelo Russell was in and out of the lineup. Malik Beasley got suspended. So even them at their potential best with Saunders, he he never really got an opportunity to do that. I think I saw a number that Cat and D'Lo at this point have played 90 minutes on the floor together. Hmm. Total. This year and last year. It's, it's, it's incredible. So to this point, we haven't seen the pair together even with Chris Finch. But since he's been brought on, uh, there have been some positive which, positives, which is great. Towns is playing better basketball. He's getting the ball in his hands a lot more. And as a result, the assist numbers are going up, which is cool. Uh, the shot totals, which is something that Wolves fans have been clamoring for since the days of Jimmy Butler. Uh, those numbers are going up. 
Uh, he's in the 20s in shot attempts every game, which is which is good. He's an elite offensive player. Defe- defensive deficiencies aside, he's an elite offensive player. And when you have a lack of options, a lack of resources, you have to utilize what you have. And Cat is what you have. Beasley's now back. Russell, there are photos of him practicing with the team. So things are on the up and up in the, in terms of health, in terms of roster flexibility and rotation depth and all that stuff. They're still struggling to win games as it is, even though it looks like Finch is trying to sort of turn the page on the days of Wolves past with the roster that they had. They just lost to the Houston Rockets, who had only won one game previously, I think, of their last 23, something like that. Uh, We all know about their 20-game losing streak, but they lost to them by 22 uh, after barely beating them by six the night before. But then they come back yesterday, Monday, and almost uh, make a full-on comeback against the Brooklyn Nets, albeit without Kevin Durant, but still the Brooklyn Nets with uh, James Harden and Kyrie Irving and everybody else. So they're in a weird spot. Uh, They're they're still not a good basketball team, but there there are things, there are positives to take away. Anthony Edwards has been fun. Jaden McDaniels has been a sort of a beacon of light at the end of the first round. He's been fun this year. So there are positives. I don't know if Wolves fans see it that way at this point, uh, but I'm hoping that there's light at the end of the tunnel for this season. Um, what has been the biggest difference if someone is only familiar with Cat from a year and a half ago? What uh, what have you noticed that um, for someone who watches every game is uh, very apparent that he's evolved and progressed in this way? That's a good question. I think it's just... Th- the number of times he's getting the ball on the block for for me as a someone that watches every game that's apparent for someone that's not watching like the the visual cue that you might see if you watch cat twice a year uh this year versus previous years are the passes uh, that's that's probably the best visual cue i can think of he's he's throwing a lot more of these almost jokic like one-handed chucks across the court and they're usually landing I, I'm not a huge fan of them in total, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of the time they seem to be working. He has great court vision, and just in terms of finding the right guy, it's it's working pretty well. He hasn't had Beasley or Russell for the majority of his time since he got back uh, from his wrist injury and from contracting COVID-19, but he's finding guys that are open. Jaden McDaniels has been his most reliable target, uh, but... Yeah, that's that's the thing that comes to mind. I mean, he's still a great shooter. He can still finish in the post. Uh, he can still move with the ball, but getting the ball, getting doubled, because, I mean, it's who else is going to score on the team is, I'm assuming, the, the defense's strategy most of the time. So double cat, but he's finding open guys in, a I guess, a flashier way. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but his his vision is, is very apparent, if nothing else. Interesting. Um for Anthony Edwards, what outside of the shooting that's obviously ticked up, what is what has changed from him? What has he figured out this rookie season? What have you seen from game one versus where he's at right now? Oh man, he's he's picking stuff up progressively. It it, it, it went from a guy that looked very lost in the preseason and the first I don't know ten games of the season. Uh, keep in mind he's nineteen years old still. He's not turning twenty until the summer, so he's a really young rookie for this class. Mm-hmm. And for him to 
I mean, I, I don't know if you want to say he's in the running for rookie of the year, but certainly uh, a guy that's going to finish in the top three or four probably in rookie of the year voting. Uh, he's come a long way, and I think the thing that's really helped him has been the Chris Finch hiring. He's really doubled down on what type of shot selection he wants from Edwards. Early on, he was trying to find a shot at Georgia. He was he was big on the contested threes, on the step-back threes, and he was the only guy on that team. So a lot of the time, he just had to take it. On this team, he for a good chunk of the year, he had D'Angelo Russell and Malik Beasley. They both go down. Then he gets Cat. Cat, obviously a different type of impact guy. He has options on the floor, and I think Finch is trying to show him that. He has been taken out, taken out of games because of his defensive lapses, but uh, Finch is really trying to get him to drive more because that's really where his uh, strengths are at the moment. Early on in his career, he's incredibly strong for a 19-year-old rookie. He can. Uh, there was a game against New Orleans where he literally drove, and his just his momentum took Jackson Hayes from underneath the basket towards the stanchion. It wasn't a foul. It was just like the collision drew him back. It was gravity. It was crazy. And he finished the basket. He has good touch around the rim. Uh, He has good sense of how to get to the rim and how to draw fouls and all that. Uh, The next steps for him will be one that's a pet peeve of a lot of big Wolves fans is going to be making sure that he isn't complaining when he doesn't get the foul call. He does that, and then he doesn't get back on defense, and then the other team scores, and that's really what's been hurting the Wolves a lot of the time because he does take a lot of shots. But his getting to the basket and finishing is incredibly impressive. He has a nice jumper. Once he figures out his shot selection from three um, and figures out how to better integrate himself into an offensive system Mm. and have him realize that he doesn't have to kind of ball watch on offense and try to get into it. You know when you're like a kid and – there's the really good guy on the team who is just kind of hovering around the ball because he knows he's eventually going to get it because he's going to be the one that shoots. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how he plays right now. Uh, it's it's an NBA team. He doesn't need to do that, and he's still figuring that out. But a lot of natural ability early on, more than I expected, honestly. And uh, he's going to be something. It's it's just going to take him a little while to fully realize it. But the, the, the ceiling is very high for Ant. When I think about the Wolves now, with Ant becoming a guy, D'Lo only playing, like you said, 90 minutes with Cat, um, Jarek Culver, who I want to ask you about, still being in the full, kind of the forgotten lottery pick. Yeah. Um, with more lottery picks on the way here, I'm wondering who Rosas feels are part of the core outside of Ant and Cat for sure. Do you think, like, at some point you have to figure out, okay, who are the keepers and who are not? This is too young. We have to get a little bit older. Who of this group sticks and who doesn't? And I'm wondering with the Wolves, because uh, the Hawks are about to go through this with Cam and Hunter and Herder and everybody else. Like, you just can't yeah. keep all these guys and you can't. Like, it just, the timelines eventually get very complicated. And the Wolves are going to be in the lottery again this year. And they're going to have another person you throw into this and they might not be a playoff team either next year. Um, the West is difficult right. and that's a possibility. And then it's like, okay, we have too many young guys. People have to move on. We have to make difficult decisions. Um, are you at all worried about that? Or do you think this is something that Gerson Rosas is thinking about? Um, what What do you make of Russell and Culver's long-term fit and whether or not they'll be with this group long-term and they should be seen as a core piece or core pieces rather? It's it's a good question. I, I'm sure Gerson is thinking about it. I hope he's thinking about it. Uh, I think 
Culver and D'Lo are in very different categories. I think Culver very well could have been traded at, if nothing else, because he is basically being forced playing time right now out of necessity. And, and that necessity is the fact that he was drafted seventh overall a year ago. He hasn't finished around the rim. His jump shot isn't good. He's turning the ball over. It's just, it's really ugly so far. And I'm rooting for the guy, but it just hasn't been a good start for him. Uh, it, I, I don't know. There, there's, there's ability there. He's got a good handle on the ball. He has instincts when he gets to the basket. Like when, early on, I thought, okay, he can get to the basket. He's got some, uh, some leaping ability. Maybe he can figure it out. As of now, when he goes to the basket, I don't have the same hope and faith that I did around this time a year ago. As for D'Lo, uh, you mentioned the Wolves have lottery picks coming up. They might have a lottery pick this year. Yeah. They traded their protections away from 4 to 14 in the event, or in the Andrew Wiggins, D'Angelo Russell trade. So mm-hmm. it, unless the Wolves get a top three pick this year in the lottery, it's going to Golden State. True. So if they get four, it's going to Golden State, which for Wolves fans is brutal because D'Angelo Russell, despite the fact he was an all-star in Brooklyn and took them to a playoff berth that one year, hasn't quite lived up to that all-star hype yet. And I don't see him going anywhere for the simple fact that we just haven't seen him and Cat on the floor together. And I don't think Gerson is going to put that much of an investment in a guy making that much money, in a guy that they traded. Wiggins, who, I, I mean, to a certain degree was salary that they needed to shed um, at that point if they were going to rebuild and get rid of him. They were going to have to give up some pick baggage, I guess you could say. But it was a lot. So if if you're giving up like the fifth pick, the fourth pick, whatever it might be, uh, just to get D'Angelo Russell, you have to see what he is like on the floor with Ant, with Malik Beasley, and of course with Cat. You just have to. So I would... I, I don't know, man. I, I have a feeling that this year is going to be considered for whether it's right or wrong is going to be considered a wash by the front office because of the injuries, because of the pandemic, uh, because of all the horrible, tragic stuff that cats had to go through uh, this past calendar year. I, I just don't see them looking at this year as the true sample size of what this team could be. I don't know what a team with Russell Edwards towns, Beasley, McDaniels, whatever have you, is. And I, I know he's going to tweak. And honestly, to answer your question fully, I think the only true untouchables right now are Cat and Ant, uh, with Russell sort of being a in-between untouchable for the reasons I, I stated before. Past that, I think everyone could go at the right price. Gerson traded, I think it was nine or ten guys last year before the deadline. He traded nobody this year at the deadline. He'll do whatever it takes to try to improve the team and try to make Towns and Russell and everybody happy uh, for when their contracts start to get shorter and shorter in, in terms of how much time they have left on them. So uh, it's it's hard to say, but I, I I think that they're going to test this team out again next year with with a couple tweaks. They're going to try to get a power forward at some point. They haven't really had a power forward next to Cat since Taj Gibson was on the team. So that's going to be a high priority for them, but that yeah they need to see what russell and cat looks like before they make any big moves in terms of either of those two players do you think chris finch is the long-term answer at coach (sighs) um (laughs) i that's a that's a loaded question only because i didn't know much about him 
I learned well, more about him as way. they hired him. Have yeah. you noticed a what like what have you noticed specifically that he has figured out that Ryan Saunders could not with this group? Like what is what are the obvious on court differences? I, I'm seeing more specific instruction for their two main scorers. And by two okay. main scorers I mean Cat and Edwards, because he hasn't coached D yet. Mm. So Lucky for that him. would be what's that? Lucky for him. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm not a D so, guy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh I don't know. Like I I think Ryan had a good overarching theme that he wanted to roll with, and it was modern, and it was anti what Tom Thibodeau was doing, which is very like my way or the highway. We're going to get it done like it's 2011, and I've got MVP Derek Rose and all those guys. Uh, by the way, shouts to Tibbs. He's killing it in New York yep. this year. Side note, but the, uh, the, the specific instructions that he's given to Cat and Edwards, I think, have helped them overall, and he's kind of holding them accountable like i said at the beginning they're losing games badly to teams that they shouldn't be losing to teams badly so it's gonna take some some work uh and i'm still learning about chris finch as we go he's saying the right things i'm very curious to see what he does with more offensive options once they gain a little bit of on-court chemistry because right now i just i just don't know it he was hired in the strangest of ways and for a guy to go from an assistant coaching gig on another team to head coach in, in the middle of the season is just so unique. And I don't want to fully judge him positive or negative right away. And on top of all that, there's been so much bad on top of like the periodic good that I don't want to overreact to the good. And I, I mean, the bad has been consistent with what we've seen throughout the year, so it's yeah. just so hard to say right now. He'll need a little bit more time. He's the coach. He's going to be there next year, so he'll get his opportunity. So the jury's kind of out on him for me. What are you looking for to wrap up here, Tim? What are you looking for from the Wolves down the stretch here? What would you like to see? What storylines are you monitoring? What are you What are you interested in with the rest of this Wolf season? <sighs> to score more points than the other team. No, that is, um, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. End pod. No, I, I don't know. It's, I would like to see, uh, I'll say two things. I would like to see some real punch from the cat Russell pick and roll combo. Once they get going at the very, very beginning of the season, there was a game against Utah where it was close and at the end of the game, they were doubling towns. And D'Lo, who has always been a good clutch shooter, he kicked it out to him. And he hit a couple threes, and it won the Wolves the game. And at that point at the beginning of the year, I'm like, okay, that's why they brought D'Lo here. Wiggins wouldn't have made that shot, mm. nor would he have taken it probably. And that got me a little bit excited. Beasley was hot early on. And I would love to see the awesome potential that those two have on the floor together. Because regardless of their faults, they fit in theory, on paper, very well. Um, and in addition to that, I mean, considering how bad they are, <laughs> considering their record, I want to see Edwards continue to make strides, and I want to see Jaden McDaniels continue continue to make strides. Edwards is the sexier rookie. He's scoring more points. Uh, he has the star potential. He's getting He's getting the attention, at least locally. I don't hear much about him nationally but whatever i don't care uh he he's getting the attention locally for valid reasons and i I want to see him continue to make strides towards looking more like a primary scoring option 
because as much as I, I think Cat is great, uh, I, I still think this team eventually, if you're going to roll with a Cat and D'Lo team, you're going to need a guy who can take a, take a guy off the dribble and score and hit from the perimeter. And Edwards has the potential to do that. A Donovan Mitchell, Devin Booker type. The Wolves are going to need something like that. Uh, and they're not going to be able to afford to sign one. So Edwards is their best chance. So they need to see him uh, make some strides forward. And McDaniels, who this is a roundabout way of getting back to him, he's shown a lot of defensive potential. Mm. He he's a, he's a skinny six foot nine, six foot ten kid, but his ability to defend in the post on the perimeter has been vastly uh, passing my expectations. I did so you not find another Akogi. No, no, because he can also shoot, which is great. <laughs> uh, I love Josh Okogie, but he's he's making his way out of the rotation slowly because his shooting has been just atrocious and his decision-making with the ball hasn't been much better and his finishing hasn't been great. McDaniels, like I said earlier, has been Cat's most reliable target when he's getting doubled mm-hmm. and he's open. He's making his three-pointers. And if he can be a 3-and-D guy... Uh, on top of the athleticism that he showcased a little bit, like he honestly has the potential to be a starting player in the NBA. Uh, he's got a ways to go before he gets there, but he has the tools to do that. The fact that his defense is this good, and he was just finished his freshman year at Washington a year ago is super encouraging. And if nothing else, if they can get two rookies to become core pieces to the team going forward, that's a really promising thing. Uh, it's it, If that combo were to somehow all form together maybe you see a wolves run at the end of the year and that maybe gives the wolves some hope for next year but it's been it's been pretty brutal so far but those are kind of the two things that i think wolves fans are hoping for all right tim what can we check out from you this week at a wolf among wolves well uh i've started a new podcast Mm -hmm. a few months it's called wolf of pod street i'm gonna have some friends on we're recording tomorrow night should come out thursday morning and, uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. It's mostly been writers and journalists and stuff, but tomorrow we're just having a bunch of Wolves fans on. We're going to shoot the breeze about uh, what it means to be a Wolves fan, why the hell they're still Wolves fans in 2021, all that good stuff, and how, how they became Wolves fans. So uh, it's a fun one. So it, you'll see that at awolfamongwolves.com, but you can also subscribe to it after you listen to the Chase Thomas podcast, of course. Oh, absolutely. And, hey, you have my full endorsement. You have my full I appreciate it, man. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Tim, for making the time. I greatly appreciate it. Um, we will uh, have to circle back again soon, maybe when the, the Wolves figure it all out and D'Lo and Cat are killing on the pick and roll and Ant is coming in dunking on more people and maybe they're right, a playoff team and all that good episode. stuff. Uh, 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 playoffs? Okay, I'll speak thank to you, you in seven years. I can't wait. Perfect. All right. We'll only be almost 40. Um, great. <laughs> Looking forward to it. All right. Great, Tim. Thank you so much and uh, stay safe out there. Like today's episode. You too. Leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple. It would be great. Um, it helps the show continue to grow and I would very much appreciate it. Uh, you can also support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash chase Thomas writer. Um, for as little as $5 a month, it helps the show keep the lights on. So that would be a great help to me as well. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at chase underscore Thomas. You could go to chase Thomas podcast.com, which has all of my stuff, all my episodes ever, um, links to everything that you need. Um, and all of my writing that uh, I'm doing fairly often these days um, on the NFL, on NBA, on college football, on pro wrestling. I write about everything. I write a lot. Um, so go read me on that front. So if you're not tired of listening to me, you can also read me. 
Um, so that's awesome. But uh, I think that's enough self-promotion from me for one episode. Uh, I hope you continue listening. That would be great. And uh, I will talk to you all again very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Wise Markets Pharmacies are now offering COVID vaccines to anyone who wants one. You can schedule your appointment by visiting wisemarkets.com and we're also accepting walk-ins when available. Get your COVID vaccine today and keep your family safe. Please see store for more details.